Doctors take Field of Greens for their own health. Here's Dr. Ryan Green to explain. We're like you, too much fast food and not enough exercise. That's why I take Field of Greens. The fruits and vegetables in Field of Greens support my heart, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism for weight loss. And Field of Greens promises your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. Get 15% off with promo code HEALTH at fieldofgreens.com. That's promo code HEALTH at fieldofgreens.com. Product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Having a versatile, high-quality piece of clothing feels great, but having a whole closet full of favorites feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. potential contact between the pre-Columbian peoples of South America and the Polynesian peoples of the Pacific, and how this tied in to a theory we looked at way back in the very first episode of this podcast. In that episode, we looked at the various theories about where the people of the Americas came from and when. We looked at how the previously agreed-on date for when the first people arrived was around 15,000 years ago but that there was some evidence to suggest it may have been earlier, quite a lot earlier. Well, there's been another important piece of research published recently, this time by archaeologists working in northern Mexico. They've excavated a cave, and they believe that the stone tools they found there date back as far as 30,000 years before today. This isn't the first site which people have argued is older than the generally accepted 15,000 years in which people have lived in the Americas. However, it is significantly older than most. As with last week's Polynesian findings, these findings have to be treated with caution. They have been greeted with scepticism by many members of the academic community. It does add to a gradually increasing body of evidence, however, that suggests that perhaps people were in the Americas much earlier than we had originally thought. We can only wait and see if more evidence is uncovered from the site, or if more sites are found. Today, I have another exploration episode for you, and this is a story I've been looking forward to telling. The life of Alicio Garcia is fascinating, but today he's largely forgotten. Despite this, his adventures are pretty significant. They resulted in the first European contact with the Inca. Now exact details of his expedition are hard to come by. I can only give you a best guess of what happened. The first account we have of his story was published in 1612, almost a century after the events. Luckily, the author of this account was well placed to write it. He was partially descended from the indigenous people of the region that Garcia passed through. In the 1540s, 
he had interviewed some of the people who took part in the expedition. Garcia's early life is equally unknown. We know he was Portuguese, probably from Alentejo, in Portugal's south. When he was born is not known, and what he did before our story is also a mystery. The first time he appears in the historical record was when he signed up to the expedition of Juan Diaz de Solis. I can't tell Garcia's story without first outlining that of Solis. Now you might remember I mentioned him in the first Magellan episode, because he was the first European to reach the Rio de la Plata. Solis was a veteran explorer. He had taken part in early trips to the Yucatan, and had been a member of the crew of Vicente Pinzon's trip to explore the coastline of northern Brazil. He had then been appointed Spain's pilot major, making him one of the most important people in Spain's empire. In 1515, he was sent out to explore southern Brazil, presumably as a first attempt at Magellan's mission to find a route to the Pacific. This trip did not go well. It didn't even go well enough to make a proper episode out of it. The story isn't long enough. He reached Brazil and sailed down to the Rio de la Plata. He then started to go upstream with a small group of his expedition's most senior members. But they hardly made it past the river's estuary before they were attacked by either the Guarani or the Charua people. Solis was killed and possibly eaten, so the expedition was called off. Now this is where things start to get a bit uncertain. Some of the expedition went back to Spain and reported what had happened. It appears, though, that a small number did not make it back. They were probably shipwrecked on the island of Santa Catarina. Alessio Garcia was probably among them. We are certain that however he got there, he was shipwrecked in the area by around 1524, and we can't say with complete certainty that he did not arrive there independently of Solis. Considering the next part of the story, however, it seems likely that he had been there for quite a while, and the eight or nine years between Solis's expedition and Garcia's 1524 one is certainly long enough to lay the groundwork. I say this because Garcia managed to raise an army of indigenous people, and surely he would have had to have spent quite a while among them in order to convince thousands of them to agree to his crazy scheme. We don't know how he did it. The outline for Europeans marooned in Latin America at this time was generally pretty poor. Most would die, either of disease, or from being unable to sustain themselves in an alien environment, or else from conflict with the indigenous peoples. This is what makes Garcia's story so fascinating. He seems to have not just survived, but to have thrived. He integrated himself into Guarani society. He learned several local languages, and then he moved northwards towards today's Sao Paulo. By 1524, he had moved inland, and was suggesting that thousands of Guarani join him on an expedition westwards into unknown and probably hostile territory. Now, of course, Cortes managed to gain multiple indigenous allies and to persuade them to fight with him in Mexico. But Garcia's situation was a bit different. Yes, Cortes only had a small number of Europeans with him, but he had arrived in Mexico 
as had been planned, with well-supplied ships, horses and cannons. He was also able to exploit existing hostility between the Aztec and the peoples who he got on side. Garcia, on the other hand, probably had less than ten Europeans with him, and having been shipwrecked, he had nothing. No supplies, no real weapons. There wasn't a complex pre-existing political situation he could take advantage of. Garcia had heard rumours of a figure known as the White King, who ruled over a rich empire in the mountains. This was the Inca, and the White King was their emperor, Huayna Capac. The Inca never made it this far east, not by a long way, and so to the Guarani, their great empire was probably just a rumour. They had no political motivation to join Garcia's army, because the Inca were not attempting to conquer them. They had no relationship. I don't know if gold and silver were used and valued in Guarani society, but Garcia managed to instill a desire for precious metals in them and convince them to join him. He had heard that the White King possessed huge amounts of these metals. I should say again that everything in this story is a best guess. We think he may have set off from today's Paraguay, and may have had around 2,000 Guarani in his army. Some versions of the story talk about him stumbling upon a great waterfall, and suggest that this was the Iguazu Falls. If this was the case, it would suggest that he launched his expedition from Brazil, as the falls are on the eastern side of Paraguay. Perhaps he set off from Brazil with a small group, and picked up the bulk of his army in Paraguay after encountering the falls. It's not completely certain that he came across them at all. If he did, though, it would have been spectacular. Iguazu is one of the biggest waterfalls in the world. He would have seen nothing that even comes close back in Europe. Once he'd reached Paraguay, he probably went northwest and had to cross the Chaco. This would have been difficult. The Chaco is a dry plain. The vegetation largely consists of scrubby thorn trees, and it's extremely hot. It's very inhospitable, and even today, it's barely populated. It would have been very difficult to survive as they made their way across it. They were also now among indigenous people, with no connection to his Guarani allies. As a result, it's said that they had to fight off frequent attacks from the local peoples whose land they were passing through. Once they'd made it through the Chaco, into what is today Bolivia, it wasn't long before they reached the foothills of the Andes and the edge of the Inca Empire. Here they found indigenous groups who were hostile to the Inca, people who lived close to them under the constant threat of invasion. Apparently some of these decided to join them. So reaching this point made Garcia the first European to encounter the great Inca civilization. He wouldn't encounter the mythical white king, however. This was the periphery of the empire, and Huayna Capac would most likely have been far away in Cusco if he was not off campaigning somewhere. One source says that he was based in the Ecuadorian city of Quito at the time. Now if, in a hypothetical situation, the Inca had wanted to conquer the Guarani, they probably would have won any land battle they had. They had the continent's latest technology and a large, organised, 
professional army at their disposal. The tribal nature of Guarani society would have made it difficult for them to resist. Coming out of the blue, however, to this relatively undefended outpost, Garcia and his allies were able to win some quick victories and gather a significant amount of loot. They sacked the towns of Presto and Tarabuco, about 60 miles into Inca territory, and may have overrun the only real fortress and garrison in the area. It wasn't long, however, before the Inca mobilised themselves, and having already plundered more than enough, Garcia decided that they should retreat. One source says that 20,000 Inca soldiers had been sent to deal with them. Garcia left Inca territory, and he managed to avoid any real losses. Apparently as a direct result of this raid, the Inca decided that this previously quiet stretch of border now needed protecting. They started building fortifications there, and about a century later, once the area was under Spanish control, Spanish settlers reported a mysteriously high concentration of forts and walls there. Garcia retraced his steps back into Paraguay, and there he set up camp. He may have been intending to regroup and go back to raid the Inca again. Some of the Europeans who had survived the initial shipwreck had decided not to accompany Garcia. They were said to be living on Brazil's coast. Once he had established their camp, Garcia sent them messages, letting them know about his success. Despite the silver he had sent to tempt them, they decided once again not to join him. It all sounded too crazy. Apparently, a year or two later, a Spanish ship passed by and they were rescued. They lost the silver, though. It fell into the sea as they tried to load it aboard. Garcia never managed to launch his second expedition, or to benefit from the plunder he already had. He was attacked at his camp and killed. It isn't clear whether local Guarani decided to get rid of him and steal the silver, or whether his own Guarani allies decided to turn against him. Now some sources say that Garcia had a son, and that the people attacking him decided that he should be spared as he was just a child. This seems unlikely though. A European son would surely have not accompanied him to South America. And if Garcia had had the child with an indigenous woman since the shipwreck, the child would still have been very young, and it seems unlikely he would have been taken on the expedition into Inca territory. Garcia's story is a great what-if moment. The might of the Inca Empire forced him to settle for raiding rather than conquering, but what would happen if he had not been killed? Would he have managed to carve out a state for himself somewhere amongst the Guarani? It brings to mind Kurtz, from Heart of Darkness or Apocalypse Now. I'm imagining a scenario where the Spanish and Portuguese arrive later, perhaps travelling upriver to find one of their countrymen ruling a strange and previously unknown state lost in the heart of South America. It would take quite a while until Paraguay and the plains of Bolivia and northern Argentina are settled properly by the Spanish. The places where this story took place will be a remote frontier region for a long time. In the next couple of decades, several more explorers will cross the area, and they will find it difficult 
despite being more equipped than Garcia was. His story is fascinating because he went out into the complete unknown. The only thing he did know was that he was attempting to attack a powerful enemy, by far the most difficult target he could have picked. He did it with no support, starting from a position of complete hopelessness, and he almost succeeded. By raiding the Inca, he'd done the hard bit by the time he was killed. As we shall see next episode, the story of Garcia will become something of a legend, and his adventure, along with the rumours of the rich white king, will inspire subsequent explorers, some of whom will try to follow in his exact footsteps. Next episode we'll look at the story of one of those, a man who is well known for his explorations elsewhere in the Americas, but whose adventures in this region are often forgotten. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelled M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at History of Latin America Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T photo. Thanks for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.